You can turn once again in your copy of God's Word to the book of James. James chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 14 through 26, so through the end of the chapter. A wonderful passage of God's Word, a in some ways has been a historically controversial passage of God's Word, but one that I trust will be wonderfully helpful and instructive to us tonight. Um, Why don't we stand as uh, I read from God's Word? James 2, starting in verse 14, this is God's wonderful Word. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, a foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Amen. May the Lord bless us as we look to his word together. You may be seated. This is an important text of scripture. As I said, it's been a historically controverted text of scripture. And here is a text of scripture that in many ways demarcates a Protestant versus a Roman Catholic understanding of salvation. For many, this is a confusing text of Scripture. For others, it has been a scary or even burdensome text of Scripture. And we know that the relationship between faith and works is essential for us to understand. We rightly fear the legalism that results from an overemphasis on works, but we also rightly fear the lawlessness that can result from an underemphasis on works. Therefore, it's imperative for us tonight to try and understand what James is teaching us and to understand how this text harmonizes with the great truths of salvation by faith alone as taught throughout the New Testament. And we know that as all Scripture is breathed out by God with God as its author, No two scriptures can be truly contradictory, but that doesn't mean we don't still need to work to understand proper distinctions and nuances in the text of scripture. And I believe that for us tonight, this text, rightly understood, although it is meant to pierce the hypocrite, ought to be an encouragement in the lives of believers to spur us on to love and good works. That's what James has for us. 
And James, when he comes to this passage, he's talking to the poor believers to which he's writing in the churches. Believers who are exiles, fleeing persecution, poor, learning how to live life together. And he's been writing them, talking about the need to really live out their faith. If you remember back to chapter 1, he talked about the need to be doers of the word and not hearers only because there's this danger of being self-deceived. And so he tells them that the true religion they ought to be pursuing is the religion that bridles the tongue, the religion that serves the widow and the orphan, and the sort of religion that stays pure from the defilements of the world. And he discusses at length one of those worldly defilements being that sin of discrimination, where some rich in the church are being favored and the poor being despised. And he's capping off this discussion here in James chapter 2, reminding them of that same truth, that faith without works is dead faith. It is not living faith. And so look with me at the first verse here, verse 14, where James says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And the answer to this rhetorical question is no. That sort of faith doesn't save. And the implication here is that there's two types of faith. There's a this faith, as it were, and then a that faith. The that faith is the faith that doesn't save, but there's another faith that does save. So we see a distinction right away. And now, this is perhaps slightly tricky for us because we often use the word faith only to refer to saving faith, to true faith. But James is saying that you can think of the word faith in two different ways. When we think of non-saving faith, we often use words like mere mental assent, right? Someone just giving a mental assent to the list of right doctrines, but not having true faith in the heart. That's what James here is calling a dead faith, a non-living faith, but yet he uses the word faith to describe both. And we know that in life, you can have two things that have the same name and the same form, but be very different in how they work. For instance, uh, if I was young and my dad was asking me to get him a screwdriver to come and maybe fix a light switch plate, uh, he might ask for a Phillips screwdriver, right, the star head. But if I, being a good Canadian, get a Robertson screwdriver, which was Canadian invented, which has a square head, they're both screwdrivers. In many ways they look alike, but only one will work. Only one is working, though they share the same name and the same form. Or consider the similarities between a teddy bear and an actual bear. Both are bears, both have a name and a form that's the same, but one is very much alive and the other is not. And this helps us understand that the same word faith can be used to describe something that works and something that is alive, or it can be used to describe here something that is dead and that does not work. But James uses the word faith for both. And he gives us an example here of dead faith. Here's what it looks like in action. Look at verse 15. He says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. He's again picturing a scenario in a local church like ours, and someone comes in, and they are 
lacking proper and adequate uh, clothing and food. And you can imagine someone having a conversation and the person sharing their struggles and their need. And the person looks and responds to them saying, oh, that's, that's, very, that's very sad. God bless you. I really hope you find a meal and a nice warm coat at this kind of year. James is saying that's not faith in action. That's like a dead sort of faith. And James is saying that the sort of faith that is living, that works, is the sort of faith that shows practical love within the household of God. Faith does not live alone. Faith is not a bachelor, but is always married to good works. They go together. And so James states that faith without works is dead. He says faith without works is dead faith. Now, a second thing that can trip us up in this passage is this word works. Because here's the problem. When we hear the word faith with works, the idea of the word works conjures up for us cold, dutiful, calculating, legalistic obedience. You just do the right thing. You keep to the checklist. You live in this pure manner. But that's not what the word works here ought to be connoting to us. We ought to be thinking of good works. And good works in the New Testament are nothing less than acts of love to our neighbors. Acts of service, generosity, kindness, and care. Good works are loving actions. And so it is a help to us if we think of the word works, we could almost just as well substitute the word love, reminding us that faith without love is dead. Faith and love. And this accords perfectly with other New Testament writers who say the same thing. Consider what John teaches in a close parallel in 1 John 3, 13 to 18. And he uses a very similar example to James. He says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. But by this we know love, that he, that is Jesus there, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And here's the example. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Almost an identical picture to James here. A believer is lacking in the necessities, and true faith is manifested in loving actions of practical love. Just as James holds out works as an evidence of living faith, so does John uphold love as an evidence of true spiritual life. Paul says similarly in Galatians 5 verse 6, That neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Faith working through love. And there you have all three there. Faith, working, love. And truly, love is the perspective of the motivation. The work is the perspective of the action. Faith works through love. And faith without love to work through is like, you might think of it like a car without gas. You could see the most immaculate dream car parked there on the lot, but yet if it's never had a tank filled with gas, it's useless. It's dead. It doesn't do anything. 
But love fuels our actions. And when love and faith are together, they work. You can go places, get stuff done. Faith runs and works by love. Love fuels the good works of faith. Now, as James is teaching the believers here, he's imagining a potential excuse that might pop up in the minds of the congregation. And this excuse is that we don't all need to be the workers and the faith people. Uh, Maybe we can separate those responsibilities. Look at verse 18. He says, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. And faith and works, here we learn, they can't be segmented into different groups of believers. And this has been a constant temptation in church history. In the Middle Ages, they literally separated out the monks and the nuns who could go live by themselves and do the faith stuff. They would worship God, do the prayers, live really spiritual. And then everyone else would just worry about the works stuff, the normal stuff. They separated faith and works into two groups of people. And in in a similar way, you could say that in the early 1900s, the liberal church jettisoned faith thinking they could keep the works, and the fundamentalist church thought they could jettison the works and yet keep the faith. But again, faith and works are meant to go together in every believer, and in every church. What God has joined together, we don't want any man to separate. And let's consider again here the nature of this workless faith James is describing. He reminds us here of this scary fact that faith severed from works is the sort of faith that demons have. That's what he says. This is a way to think about dead faith. It's a faith here that has merely the outward forms. I like the term formal faith. It's a faith that is merely a structure, a shell, a a list of precepts of right doctrines and right principles. And this is dangerous because James tells us that demons here have correct theology. They know that God is one. In many ways, the demons might have a better understanding of God's actual nature than we do. And they even respond with a shuddering with the fear of God. And so we think, what differentiates us from the demons? Well, again, it's this issue of love. The demons don't love God. They don't love God's people. Love is antithetical to everything. And so we're reminded that without love, this shell of formal faith is actually demonic faith. And that is a fearful thought. Nothing counts but faith working through love. And this is important for us um, to recognize. These principles that faith and works go together. James has given us marks to discern a dead faith. We saw it's a sort of faith that doesn't show practical love to the brethren. And it's a faith that merely has a form and a structure without love. And one thing I think can be instructive to us here is that we sometimes get our religious grading system wrong. The ways we evaluate what makes a good Christian or what makes a good Christian church or denomination are merely these outward forms, a right precept, a right statement of faith, the right doctrine that they know the right theology and right beliefs. But we need to ensure that when we're thinking of what is healthy or solid or appropriate for a Christian or a church, it's one that has 
that orthodoxy, that right believing, but also orthopraxy, the right behaving, a right way of love, and even further, what we might call orthopathy, a right feeling towards God, an appropriate love and affection for his people. And sometimes we act as if doctrine is 90% of what matters, and love and works maybe as the other 10%, take it or leave it. But to see that in God's sight, both faith and works are hand in hand. Both are essential and important in the life of the believer and in the life of the local church. We want to keep them together. James encourages us to that end. And he's given us these negative examples of a dead and a workless faith. And he moves in verse 20 here to two positive examples of what working faith looks like in action. Look at verse 20. He says, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not our father Abraham justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead so also faith apart from works is dead. And so here, right off the bat, we must deal with verse 24, mustn't we? You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. You're in a conversation with a Roman Catholic, you say, we are justified by faith alone. And they say, how unbiblical can you be? James 2.24, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So how, do we, how ought we to think about this concept? How does this not betray our Protestant sensibilities? Well, it's essential to understand just how James is using the word justified here. The word justified in Greek, just as in English, doesn't always necessarily um, contain the same theological definition. Right? So we, we know that theologically, the term justified is used to denote a sinner who's being counted righteous in God's sight. But even in English, we use justified that way, but you also might say, and in an argument, oh, I googled the right answer and I was totally justified in my belief. We have a non-theological use of that term as well. And James is using this word justification in a different way than Paul uses it. He's not using it here to refer to the justification of a sinner before God, but the sort of justification that happens in the life of a believer when they're practicing good works. Okay, let me unpack that a bit. First, here, this is from Matthew Poole, who is a Puritan commentator. He says that there is here no opposition between Paul and James. Paul speaks of Abraham's being justified as a sinner and properly and so by faith. So he's saying Paul is using the term justification in its theological sense. A sinner being justified before God by faith. But he says James speaks of Abraham's being justified as a believer. And so he uses this term in an improper sense. But his justification as a believer is by works. By which it's not Abraham's person that was justified, 
but rather his faith was declared to be justifying. Okay, his faith was declared to be justifying. Not that he was righteous, but that he was approved as righteous. And so let me try to translate that. It's that the justification of a sinner is his being counted righteous in God's sight by faith alone. But the justification of a believer is his being proven righteous in the sight of men by his works. Okay? By faith, the sinner is justified, but by works, the believer's faith is justified. The believer's faith is justified by works. And therefore, perhaps, a helpful term to think when you think of the word justification in James is the word vindication. That Abraham's faith was vindicated, it was evidenced to be true and genuine in his acts of radical obedience. So justification in James doesn't mean being counted righteous, but being proven faithful. Abraham's faith was proved when he walked in the way of radical obedience to God, offering up Isaac in obedience to God's command. And this is the same thing we see in the example of Rahab. We never see Rahab's verbal profession of faith, but we see the vindication of her faith. We see her faith proven, evidenced, her faith justified when she obeys and follows God's ways to care for God's people in hiding the spies and therefore evidencing her faith in God. And so James is telling us that apart from works, there's no evidence of living faith. The faith might as well be considered dead. It's not a faith that is justifiable, but faith that works. Faith that works through loving obedience to God's people and to God's commands. That is the sort of faith that is justified. It's the sort of faith that is evidenced to be living and working. And so James summarizes then in verse 36, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. That is, he says, faith without works is like a body without a soul. It's just a shell, just a bag of bones, nothing living, nothing vibrant, nothing active. Mere mental assent to doctrine is formal faith, not transforming faith. Transforming faith is the faith that leads to love for God and for others. Now, as we look at this text, the difficult question that arises for each of us to look at ourselves and think, do I have living faith? Do I evidence a working and a useful faith, saving faith, or perhaps I only have formal faith, a useless faith, a dead faith? And this is a difficult question to wrestle with. And many of you I know have experienced these sorts of questions to be burdensome and even oppressive to your own souls. And I do believe this text is actually an encouragement to the believer, but it is also meant to expose the hypocrite. And so I think we first need to let the weight of this text come to bear on us. Because if one thing is clear from this text, it's this, that it's possible that some of you here only have dead faith, a formal faith, faith that is just a shell. You might believe the right doctrines, you might have attended the right churches, grown up in the right family, but still only have a shell of a faith. And the call is for you to search your heart to see whether there is love 
along with your faith, whether it's a faith that works by love, that obeys God's greatest commands to love God and to love neighbor. And no one can answer that question for you whether you have that love in your heart. But the love that comes from faith is an evidence of God's working. I was reminded of two stories of friends of mine um, about what happened when God converted their hearts. My friend Emerald, she grew up in the church and she, re- she, she told me she always heard people saying things like, I love God. And as she grew up, she would always think this such a weird thing to say. I love God. What, she would say, what do you mean you love God? How do you love God? And it was just this foreign concept to her until the, when the Lord worked in her heart as a teenager, it just clicked and she realized, I love God. Of course I love God. This is what people were talking about. Evidencing faith that then leads to love. Or I think of um, Chris, who was an unbelieving husband coming to church for years with his wife, and he was engaged with, in conversation with many of the men in the church, learning and growing, and we were hoping and praying that the Lord would work as we saw evidence of growth. But the time he knew that the Lord had really worked in his heart was he was at a church event, and him and his wife got there early, And an older couple from the church walked in whom he didn't really know, but they walked in and he just was struck with this thought, I love Ken and Marlene. I don't really know them, but I know I love them. And it was those first evidences of love for the brethren as God worked in Chris's heart. Faith without works is dead. The works of love, the deeds of faith. And we need to ask ourselves these searching questions. Searching questions like, if it wasn't for your reputation and the people that are around you and the thoughts they would have, would you love it if you didn't feel any obligation to pray or to read the Bible or to attend church? Would you love just to not have those responsibilities? Or even more, if it wasn't for your reputation and what others would think, would you love to be able to just indulge the flesh? really just to live the way you want and get rid of these Christian moral constraints. Is that what you would really want? Because you see, the believer, though the believer feel that fight of the flesh, feel that pull, the believer's deepest desire is to serve God, is to please God above all things, out of gratitude for what God has done. Imperfectly, but endeavoring. I was reminded of this when there was that prof- the professions this morning and that last vow that we make when we join this church where we're asked, do you acknowledge Jesus Christ as your sovereign Lord? And do you promise that in reliance on the grace of God, you will serve him with all that is in you, forsake the world, resist the devil, put to death your sinful deeds and desires and live a godly life. I love seeing your faces light up when I ask you that question in our membership interviews. That you want to serve God with all that is in you. Yes, you know it's imperfect. Yes, we never attain to the sort of service to God that we want. But relying on God's grace, isn't that your heart's desire to serve him with all that's in you, to resist the devil, to lead a godly life? The believer says, yes, that's what I want. I don't make it. I'm weak. I'm sinful. God, help. I need your grace. I need to rely on it every day. But that's what I would want more than anything, to be made like Jesus, to know Jesus more. True faith is a working, loving, grace-dependent faith. 
And perhaps as you hear and you think of these questions, you feel cut in your conscience. You feel uh, opened up and you think, what am I supposed to do? Well, it's to repent of your loveless faith, to step out and obey God, to give God thanks, to give God praise, to serve him and to serve his people. Because you see, the genuineness of your faith, it's never going to be proved by sitting. It's proved and justified in the working and the loving. And so you're not called to keep waiting for some special moment where you feel the right thing and then you'll begin obeying God. No, you start working, and if the embers of faith are in your heart, the works of love will see that they're fanned into flame. The works of love will see them fanned into flame. Now, many of us, we resonate with that vow, to serve God with all that's in us, to love his people though we fail. And this text ought not be a weight that causes you to doubt, but it's meant to be a goad that stirs you up to greater love and obedience. And I believe that this text is actually well-suited to produce joy in the people of God. This is a text given for our joy. How so? Well, it produces joy in the believer to see your faith evidenced, that is justified again and again through simple daily acts of love and faith. All these workings that evidence the faith are a cause for joy because it's the spirit that gave that faith that is working in you and it's that faith that Christ died to purchase. And you don't discern faith in your heart by introspection, but by actual practice. And that's where the joy is to be found. Uh, Do you know the feeling where perhaps you haven't done something for a really long time and you sort of wonder, do I still got it? And you can sit wondering whether you still got it, but you don't know until you actually do. Um, Last year, I bought a pair of skates. And when I was growing up, I used to love skating, right, from Canada after all. And I was thinking, I was like, I don't know if I'm a really very good skater anymore. It's been so, so long. And I got skates and I went to a rink and I realized I remembered everything I ever knew. And I was skating around and I was overjoyed. I was just like a little kid. And uh, every day I tried to go skating on the pond in our backyard. And it was this repeated joy of, I am working out this thing that I had in me, but I wasn't sure was there. And every time I skated around, it was this cause for internal joy. And that's what it's like when you step out in acts of love and faith. It's seeing your faith flourish and be evidenced all around you, and you rejoice at the amazing way God is working in you as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And often it's the seasons in which we're most serving that we experience the most joy. And the temptation to withdraw withdraw, And when we doubt, to focus more and more on ourselves and go deeper and deeper into our motivations and get stiller and less active in church, less active in service and community, it actually just makes it harder and harder to see faith. The faith is seen in the working, in the flowering. And so don't get stuck staring at the tree of your life, looking for fruit, wondering if it's there, wondering if it's the right type, but enjoy the fruit. Share that fruit with others and see it in the working. As the old idiom says, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. 
And this text is given to stir us up to the love and good deeds that we get to enjoy and experience all around us. Now, I want us to just remember one more really important distinction. As we hear this, we must remember that as we want to be people of love and good works, we remember that we're not working for faith, but we're working from faith. We are not seeking to work ourselves into the faith, but working out the faith that the Holy Spirit has placed in us. Because our faith is a gift of the Spirit, purchased by the blood of Christ. Risen, Christ risen to give us the Spirit to renew us, to ransom us, as Titus 2 says, that we might be a people devoted to good works. We don't work, therefore, to earn God's favor, because we already have Christ's perfect works counted to us. But our working is an expression of the favor God has already given us. And so we work and we love, not from an impending sense of doom, but from a fruitful expectation of joy and an expression of humble gratitude. We know all God's ways, all our obedience to God is suited for our good. And all our obedience is an act of trust in our good God. We already have Christ's works in our place. And so we serve and love from freedom and joy out of love to God and gratitude to him. And so let's be a people who rejoice to daily exhibit that working, loving, living faith and see our faith vindicated in those gentle, ordinary acts of love and grace that the Spirit has worked into us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the works of Christ. We know we would never be good enough to merit eternal life, but we have all through him. As we heard this morning, Christ revealed to us your name that the same love with which you love him would be in us, that he would be in us. And thank you that whether we are failing or succeeding, your covenant love for us is unfailing. Lord, we desire to be a people that know the joy of Christ-likeness, that know the joy of a working faith, a faith that is expressed in deeds of love, in acts of kindness, in expressions of faith and praise. Lord, would your word do its work as a spiritual sword? Where there is hypocrisy, would you expose it? And would you implant in dead souls true and living, God-loving faith, and that they would see it and know it in their lives? Lord, for those who are tender in conscience and doubting, would you give them the courage and conviction to live out even the small faith that's there, and that they would be encouraged as they see faith flowering in their actions. And Lord, for all of us, would you spur us on to greater love, greater good works, not out of fear, but out of love, to know the joy of living for you as your people. Lord, would there be no satanic condemnation on any true child here tonight, but only a sense of the divine favor, and an expectation of the opportunity to live for the God who bought us, the God who has redeemed us and is renewing us. Continue that renewing and sanctifying work in us by the Spirit for the glory of Jesus in whose name we pray.
Amen.